Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Psalm 118 begins and ends with a call to give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. How good do you believe God to be? Teaching team member Caleb Click brings us this Palm Sunday sermon entitled Renewal and Thanksgiving, which covers Psalm 118. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. This is the word of the Lord, Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. And in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's read this prayer of illumination together. Grant, almighty God, that as you shine on us by your word, we may not be blind at midday, nor willfully seek darkness 
and thus lull our minds asleep. But may we be roused daily by your words, and may we stir up ourselves more and more to fear your name, and thus present ourselves and all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you, that you may peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to your celestial habitation, where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Father, would you speak now through my weakness? Would your power be made perfect in me? And would your word, Lord, would that be what we hear? The beauty of Jesus and all of his goodness, would he melt our hearts today? In Jesus' name, amen. I've confessed to you many times before, I'm a little bit of a book nerd. I'm reading constantly. Like I'm the guy who went on spring break this week and decided that my backpack didn't just need things like clothes and you know electronic gear to listen to music or whatever it might be. It was, it was books. It was which books am I going to bring? And I didn't just have physical books. I had my Kindle, which is full of a lot more books just in case I chose the wrong one and got bored and thought I needed to change it up. And, and I'm the kind of reader where I'm constantly looking for these little sentences, these, these sentences that capture me for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they capture me because they're beautiful. They're those sentences that sparkle, the ones you find in books like those by Jane Austen, where the the language is just so crisp and so perfect, it makes you stop and marvel. Other times, it's not the beauty of the language, it's the profundity of the thought. It's that you stumble on this sentence that communicates something that is good and true and deep. But sometimes... And these are the rare ones. You stumble on a sentence that has both. I stumbled on one of those a couple weeks ago. I was reading through this book and the author was talking about how as those who have all fallen in Adam and Eve, we are all, as sinners, we are consumed by this lust to dominate others. This lust to dominate others that also dominates us. This this hunger to assert our mastery, to enslave the people who are around us and to make them bend according to our desires and our wants. And the thing that we think will set us free, that thing, it actually ends up not freeing us, but enslaving us further still. It is a lust to dominate that dominates us. And it is something that we see everywhere. We see it in ways that are overt, such as when people use violence to make others do what they want them to do. It's what we're seeing now with Russia's invasion of Ukraine or with a husband who violently abuses their wife. But it's also, it's also something we see in more subtle ways. It's what you see in the boss who uses the authority that's been entrusted to him to accomplish his job for means other than that purpose either to build his own sense of power or worth or to make others feel small. It's, it's what's happening when we drop those little passive aggressive jabs at the feet of those that we love because we're hoping it will manipulate them into acting in ways other than they're acting in that moment. It's what you see in those little lies, the ones that we justify to ourselves because we're afraid that if we told the truth, that other person's not going to do what we want them to do. It's everywhere. 
And the writer of this book, he says, that lust to dominate, it is a lust that springs from two sources. The first, the first is arrogance. It's this desire to be God, to play God, to act as though we are divine. But the second, and this is the one that caught me, it's not arrogance, it's despair. He says, we despair in believing in a God who could be as good as we need God to be. Let me let you hear that again. We despair in believing in a God who could be as good as we need God to be. With that one sentence, the writer has put his finger on the sin of Adam and Eve, hasn't he? Because what is it that the serpent is whispering to Adam and Eve? It's that the God who gave you the garden, the God who has given you life and health and happiness, the God who has entrusted you with everything that he has made, he is somehow a God that you should not trust because there is something that he is withholding from you, something that you need, and thus that God, far from being good, he is actually a God who cannot be trusted. It is better to play God than to trust a God like that. And Adam and Eve, they believe it. They despair of believing in a God who is as good as they need God to be. And that doubt, that despair, it doesn't just show up outside the church. It shows up right here in the church of Jesus Christ. Why is it? That so often we find ourselves wrestling with God's commands if it is not that we doubt whether or not those commands are actually good for us. Why? When everything seems to fall apart, when things don't go the way that we think they should go, why is it that in those moments we run not to the arms of our Savior, but so often right back to the very idols Jesus saved us from? Why? When we hear God's promises of mercy and grace in Christ, do we sometimes find ourselves wondering if those promises are true for us? Why do we do those things if it is not that we have begun to doubt that God is good? Psalm 118, Psalm 118 would call us into a different and a better way. It would lift our eyes out of the muck and the mire of this world to see and to behold a God who is as good as we need him to be and in fact is better still. A God who would have us not sit in our despair but instead would renew us in thanksgiving. And this psalm, it's a complex one. I mean, if you, as you heard Leo reading through that psalm, you probably noticed there are several voices speaking and you can't always discern which one's which. There's a king, there's a priest, there's the people, and they're all sort of calling back and forth to each other. It's a sort of liturgy. And when you read the commentaries, uh, the commentators, who are all smarter than me, they're not all convinced which parts are which person speaking. They're not sure. The only one you can tell for sure, it's the crowd. The we's kind of give it away, don't they? But the plot, the theme of the psalm, it's simple. The king of Israel, 
a king from the line of David. He is being surrounded by his enemies, by nations from all around him, and the intensity of their opposition, it is so strong, he says, they are like bees that are buzzing around my ears. They're like fire that is threatening to consume me. And he comes to the point of death, and he calls out to the Lord in his distress, and the Lord, in that moment, on the brink of death, he delivers the king. And the king is so overjoyed, so overwhelmed with gratitude at what God has done, he marches to the gates of the temple, he demands to be let inside, and he goes to the altar to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the God who in his goodness has delivered him. And this is the key part, the king, though he is speaking alone, he does not enter the temple alone. Glad songs of salvation, verse 15, are where? In the tents of the righteous. It is all of God's people who share in the deliverance of this king. The God who in his goodness saves the king, saves the people with the king. So much so that his salvation means theirs. And very early on, very early on in the life of the people of God, they recognized that whoever was speaking as the king in this song, it was a king that they had not yet met. Because there were things on his lips that no king of Israel ever fit the description of, and there was a deliverance of which this psalm was speaking that they had not yet experienced. It overshadowed even the Exodus itself. And so they sat there and said, this must be speaking of the Messiah. It must be speaking of the king who is to come. It must be speaking of one who's gonna deliver us from our enslavement, from our oppression, from our foreign rulers, from the ruling of sin, from all of these things. And the reason that we are reading this psalm this morning is because that's the psalm on Palm Sunday that the crowd is singing as Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem. And not only are they singing the psalm, because that would have been normal, that's what you did on the Passover week, they're singing the psalm to Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, God, save us. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't reject that identification. The religious leaders, they come to him and they say, tell the crowds, rebuke them, tell them to be quiet, stop doing what they're doing. And Jesus says, if they went silent, the stones would cry out. And then not only does he refuse to rebuke the crowds, he turns around and rebukes the Pharisees. And he does it by identifying himself with, ver with this very text. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus says, yeah, by the way, that's me. And after Jesus' resurrection, after he has gone to his death and been raised from the grave, it is almost as though the apostles and the writers of scripture, they got a hold of this psalm and in writing the New Testament, it just exploded in their hands. There's somewhere somewhere between 25 to 35 either allusions or direct references to this psalm in the New Testament. And the reason that they are all looking at this psalm and throwing it everywhere is because they look into it and they're going, though I know the one of whom it speaks, it's the Christ, it is Jesus. 
Here is the one who would lift us out of our despair and invite us into his thanksgiving because here is the goodness of God in human flesh. Here is the greater king that we have always needed whose deliverance means our own and the only response to the presence of that king, it is this, it is thanksgiving no matter what the circumstances, no matter what we are facing because we know this, here is the God who is as good as we need him to be. And this psalm, it is deeper and more complex than I have time to this morning. This is a whole series if we're gonna go through this psalm. So I want us to just hear three things. The goodness of God in the identity of this king. The first is this. Jesus is the righteous king who opens the gates. Not just the gates of the earthly temple, but the gates of the temple to which the earthly one was always intended to point. In verse 17, The king begins to speak and he sums up everything that has come before. Listen to this. Listen to what he says. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Death is not going to hold me. The Lord has disciplined me severely. Somehow this king has been disciplined for sin, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And then the priest responds, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous and the righteous alone shall enter through it. Now there's two things that we immediately need to notice. The first is this, who gets to enter through those gates? Only who? Not sinners, Not mortals, only the righteous. And how do we know that they're righteous? Because death can't hold them. But also notice this, how does the king approach the gates? He doesn't come with his hat in his hands, begging for entrance, does he? The king marches up to the gate and the king demands entrance. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness. Do you hear the audacity of that claim? Who gets to say that? I mean, Israel very quickly realized that this psalm was speaking of a king they hadn't seen yet. There was no king of Israel who could have made that claim. It would have been arrogance or foolishness to say this marching up to the gates of the temple. Because what's happened to Israel? Every king, no matter how good, not David, not Solomon, not Josiah, every single one of them, all those kings, they've died. They might have said, I shall not die, but I will live for a moment. But in the end, they perished. Why? Because every single one of them was a sinner. None of them were righteous as this text calls them to be. None of these kings can march to the gates and say, let me inside. And guess what? We can't either, can we? You know, we live in a moment in human history where we have more things available at our fingertips to keep us alive than any other moment in human history. 
We've got hospitals, machines, we have medicines, we have doctors who have skill and training. We have all these things that that we ourselves can do to prolong or strengthen or make our lives more fulfilled and healthy. We can work out, we can take vitamins, we can take different diets, we can get surgery on our knees and have them replaced and suddenly be like we're young again. We can do all of these things. But what's the problem? Even if those prolong our lives, which they are not guaranteed to do, they will never stop the one thing that comes for every man, woman, and child, death. We hide from death. There's a reason that our graveyards are no longer surrounding our churches, but instead have been tucked away in places we don't have to pass them all the time. We don't want to see it. We don't want to be faced with the reality that one day, one day every one of us is going to die. And why is that going to happen? Because of sin. If righteousness is the condition and the proof is a life that death cannot hold, then those gates, those gates on our own, they will be forever barred to us, won't they? But the text, the text adds yet another mystery still. This king, who's so righteous death can't hold him, he's also a king who according to verse 18 is chastened for sin. Who's a king who meets meets that description? There's a reason that this text explodes across the New Testament. Because there is only one person who meets that description. It's the one who on the cross suffered not for his sins, but for whose? Ours. And whose life was proved to be righteous, sinless by this. When we killed him, what did God do? Peter, in the sermon he gives in Acts chapter 2, God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death, because why? It was not possible for him to be held by it. You want to see the king who can march up to the gates and say, open to me, and the person who guards the gates has to go, come on in? It's Jesus. He's the only one. And yet notice the beauty In Psalm 118, is it the king alone who gets to come inside? No. It's the people who come through the gates with him. You want to see the goodness of God? Look at Jesus. Here is the one who takes the gates of heaven and at the cost of his own life, swings them open to his people so that they could enter, not because of their righteousness, but because of whose? His. You know, we, as Eric mentioned a few minutes ago, as a church, we're grieving this morning the loss of one of our own. The loss of one of our elders, Stuart Evans. And that's, A moment of pain, 
sorrow. But this text also would point us towards a moment of hope too, wouldn't it? Because when Stuart Evans passed into glory last week, he didn't wake up as a believer in Jesus Christ to find those gates barred to him, did he? He found them as wide open as the arms of Jesus on the cross. Not because Stuart was righteous, but because his king, his king was righteous. We, we're consumed, we're consumed with keeping hold of whatever we think is ours. The goodness of God is that he is consumed with giving us what rightfully belongs only to him. You know, Augustine, Augustine has this line where he talks about how if you want to know what somebody loves, look where they build walls. Look where they're bolting their doors or look where they're using force to take things. That, that's where you find what somebody really loves. But God, God's not putting up walls. What's God doing? God is breaking them down. Why? Because what he loves is you. He is opening the gates of heaven to his people in and through the work of the righteous son. And that goodness, it doesn't stop with the righteous king opening the gates. You see it also in that this righteous king, he's also this thing that seems very strange on the surface. He's a rejected king who somehow mysteriously becomes the cornerstone. Now this, this is strange. I mean, this is a mystery if ever there was one in the scriptures. And yet, if there's one part of Psalm 118 that I'm sure you've heard, it's this one, isn't it? Because it's everywhere. Jesus is using it. The apostles are using it. And what does the text say? The king comes into the gates of the temple. Verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then you hear the people. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You get a hint right here that something, something else is going on other than just foreign nations attacking this king. The bees that are buzzing, the fire that is burning, it is not just the fury of the nations outside, it is the fury of his own people. It's the builders who are coming after him. His own people are treating him like a stone that is fit for nothing but the scrap pile. A stone that isn't even fit to fill in the chinks of the mortar. Instead, they are throwing it aside. And Jesus, this king, is saying, but somehow, God in his goodness, he took what the people rejected and he has made it the cornerstone of something bigger and better and lasting that all of God's people then share. And so much so they will rejoice in this day and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. And this is why this is so significant on Palm Sunday. You know, the crowds and the disciples, as they're marching into Jerusalem, they're singing Psalm 118. But the verses they're meditating on, it's the one about the victory. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're looking ahead. Jesus, Jesus has that victory in mind, but I don't think that's the verse he's meditating on. I think it's this one. 
Because what has Jesus told the disciples three times in the gospels before this moment? Not only am I going to die, not only must I die, but the religious leaders, the ones who should have been most equipped to recognize and welcome me, they are be going to be the ones who hand me over to death. And when Jesus, after Palm Sunday, he is confronted by those religious leaders yet again, Jesus tells a parable of a man who plants and builds a vineyard then entrusts it to the care of tenants and then sends his servants to the tenants to receive the fruit of the vineyard that belongs to him. He built it, he planted it, they're just entrusted with keeping it. And these tenants, uh, they respond in a way that's very untenant-like. Every servant he sends, they beat them, they kill them, they stone them. Until finally, the owner of this vineyard, he goes, I know what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son. Surely they will listen to him. Now that's crazy. If someone's killing all of your servants, what do you think they're going to do to your son? They're going to kill him. And that's what the tenants do. They see the son and they think, well, look at the son. If we kill him, then it's all ours. Who's left to take it from us? And Jesus asks the leaders, what should the master of that vineyard do? And they said, oh, he should kill them, all of them. And then Jesus says this, I'm the stone rejected that has become the cornerstone. I am the son who has come. I am the one that you are even now preparing to kill. This is you. You want the kingdom, but you don't want the king. You want the fruit of God's blessing, but not the presence of the one who brings that blessing. You are building something that looks like the kingdom, but is a farce. But for the kingdom to come, where God restores everything that sin is broken, the king has to be rejected. And Jesus, he knows it's coming. And yet this is what moves my heart. Jesus doesn't stop. You know, a few years ago, I lost a bet to somebody and got forced to read all the Harry Potter books, and I thought I'd be upset about it, but I'm really not. They were wonderful. <laughs> and there's a moment at the very end, and I'm going to ruin this for you, by the way. Just, it's been like 15 years. Like, if you haven't read it or seen the movies, I'm sorry. But the very end of the books, there's this moment where good and evil are in the final climactic clash. Harry and his friends, the people that he loves and who love him, they are fighting this final battle against Lord Voldemort who represents everything that is evil and wrong. And it seems in that moment, darkness is going to swallow up light. Evil is going to destroy good. Harry and everyone he knows and loves, they are going to die. And yet right in that moment, Harry discovers that there is one way that Voldemort can be defeated. One way that light can push back darkness, that evil can be brought to an end, and it is a way that Harry never would have guessed. It's not that Harry is to assert his power and kill Voldemort. It is that Harry, the boy who lived, has to lay down his power and, as J.K. Rowling writes, calmly walk into the welcoming arms of death. The boy who lived has to become the boy who dies. And Harry is terrified. Because what he has to do is walk into the arms of death 
and he is trembling and he is fearful. But because he loves his friends, Harry goes and Harry dies. You know, I don't know J.K. Rowling's heart, but I can tell you this, I read that section for the first time and I wept because she gave me in that moment a window through which to see and feel and experience a little bit of what must have been going on in the heart of Jesus. Because what is Jesus doing? As Philippians 2 tells us, the God who had all power in heaven and on earth, all of it, he laid that power down and assumed our humanity. Why? So that through his death, he could free a people. He willingly walked into the arms of death. And why did Jesus do it? For a reason far more beautiful than Harry did. For the sake of those he loved, but those who didn't love him back. That is the heart of Jesus. Because he knew that in that death, he would become the foundation of a temple far better than the earthly one that he walked into. One that was going to be composed not of brick and of mortar, not of stone, but of human beings, living stones, as First Peter 2 says, redeemed sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation, brought together in the one who is the resurrection and the life and incorporated into something that death could never destroy. And yet again, what are we staring at? the goodness of God. We build our kingdoms by trying to accumulate power for ourselves, don't we? How does Jesus build his? By laying it down. And who does he lay it down for? Not people who loved him, but people who saw him and knew him and rejected him still so that we could share in something that only Jesus rightfully deserved. He's the righteous king. He's the rejected king. But lastly, we see the goodness of this savior in the fact that he's the blessed king who invites us into the father's light. Look at verses 25 to 27. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We, notice the plural, we bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Now in this original context, everything is celebration. The king has moved through the gates into the inner courts of the temple and he has come to the altar so that he can make an offering of thanksgiving for the deliverance that he has experienced at the hands of God. And this is what is incredible. It isn't the king alone celebrating at the altar. 
It is all of God's people gathered with him around the altar and notice what they said. The light of God is shining on us. The light that is the life of men, the light that satisfies, fulfills, that we were created to enjoy and live in communion with. Now, somehow, mysteriously, through this king, we have been brought into the presence of the God whose whose presence brings life to our souls. He has given us access. You know, this week is a pretty big week if you're living in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, I lived there for four and a half years, and on Master's Week, which is what this is, if you don't know what that is, big golf tournament, right? Very big golf tournament, maybe the biggest in the world. And everyone in Augusta, at some point in their lives, they want to go into that tournament. They want to at least see the grounds, if not the tournament itself. And I remember when I was there, I lived in Augusta for four and a half years. I got to go in once. And I fought for it. I don't even like golf. Like I don't play golf. I don't really enjoy it. I don't watch it that much. I watch the Masters because I lived in Augusta and I feel like I have to. But not really my thing. But I wanted to see that course. And so I took a job where I would wake up really early in the morning, just one time, and someone would hand me their pass and a folding chair. And then I would walk into the Masters, into the National, and I would bring that chair to a certain hole. I would sit it down, unfold it, and then I would promptly take the pass and walk right back out, hand it to the person, and they would give me $80. Great deal, if you ask me. Like, I'll do it again. If someone wants to pay me to do it, I'll do it a second time. And I got to see the course. It was beautiful. It was glorious. But it was only the outskirts, wasn't it? My friend, Clifton, he was my assistant youth director in First Perez in Augusta. Uh, He got something a little better. Somehow, I don't remember how, he got hold of a pass. And not just a pass for any day, but for Sunday. Which if you know the Masters at all, that's the final day of competition. And when Bubba Watson won his second green jacket, and sunk the final putt, there's this photo of Bubba Watson on the ESPN masthead where he's sitting there like this, weeping because he sunk the putt. And over his left shoulder, the right of the photo, there's Clifton just going like this. (laughs) Like, as prominent in the photo, at least to me, as Bubba Watson himself. He was sharing in the victory that was not his. Now, both of us, we had access. We were in. But they were very different kinds, weren't they? I had access to the outskirts. Clifton had access to the thing itself. There is a reason God's people are overcome with thanksgiving right here. Because they have been ushered not just into the outer courts, they have been ushered into the throne room of God himself. As Derek Kidner says, in Christ, God has broken through his signs and his shadows. And you are seeing in Jesus the fulfillment, the embodiment of everything that Psalm 118 held in kernel form. Because what is it that Jesus does? By his blood, he enters where? Into the presence of the Father through the curtain of his flesh, torn for us. And what does that mean for God's people? Hebrews 10, we now draw near with what? 
Not trembling, not terror, not doubt, but confidence. Why? Because the arms of the altar, as Kidner says, they have become the arms of the cross. Because Jesus made the sacrifice for sin, we now get to offer the sacrifice of praise. And God, in his grace and in his kindness, he hasn't just brought us through the gates and said, now you're in, but you stay over there. He's not treated us like an orphan who maybe you shelter in your home and you feed some food, but you don't really like. God has invited you into the very throne room of grace He has opened not just the gates, he has opened his heart. So that as God's people, not just on the other side of the grave, but right now, when we call on him in Christ through his spirit, we have access to that throne room at this moment. Our prayers, they aren't just flying to the sky and then flittering away. They go to the heart of God where they are welcomed and accepted. When we cry, Abba, Father, there is a Father who hears it, who gave us that desire to call to him, who has opened the gates through his Son and invited us inside. You know, we, we worry that we don't have a God who is as good as we need him to be, but if this king, if the king of Psalm 118 is the king we have in Jesus... That is one worry you do not need to have. You have a God so good that he would take the cry of the king, I shall not die but live, and he makes it the cry of his people. We have a God so good that he would not only open the gates in his son, he would lay the foundation of a new temple built on the sacrifice of Jesus And he would tear the veil that keeps us from him right down the center. And he would lay bare his heart to us. There's only one question. At the sight of that goodness, will our hearts be melted by it? Or will they be like the hearts of the religious leaders? that at the sight of Jesus' kindness and goodness just hardened their hearts in even greater ways still. The God we need, that's the God we have in Christ. And that God, he is good. So much so there's only one way we should respond. It's to join our voices with that of the psalmist and to give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Why? Because his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Gracious Father, we are here gathered together as your people, Lord. Maybe we came in apathetic or our thoughts somewhere else, or maybe, Lord, we're here in the midst of grief and sorrow and pain or doubt or worry or whatever it may be, but I pray, Lord, you take the words of the gospel, the words that we've just heard, and would you refresh us again? Would you give us eyes to see the heart of your Son, the heart that reveals the heart of the Father also? And would you melt us by the beauty of your grace? In Jesus' name, amen.